What is a fundy? That's all I wanted to know. It seemed like such a simple question. I wanted to know where the unusual name of that large body of water called the Bay of Fundy, located between New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Maine came from, and what this strange word meant. And you've got to admit, it's a pretty unusual name, Fundy. What I thought was a simple question actually had a very complicated and surprising answer stretching back 500 years. It sent me down a deep rabbit hole of research involving cranky historians, confused explorers, a baffling mix-up, and a mysterious and forgotten lost colony in the Maritimes. Possibly the first European colony in all of North America. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. So, where on earth does this word fundy come from? Mi'kmaq and Pescamukati peoples named the Bay of Fundy Baku Dabakek, which means open way. Meanwhile, Wulistikwe people named it Wekwab Igatuk, which means the waves at the head of the bay. The Maritimes have had plenty of place names that are mangled attempts by colonists to pronounce Mi'kmaq, Wulistikwe, and Pescamukati names for those places. My personal favorite is New Brunswick's Swan Creek, which comes from the word Siwankik, which means cranberry bog, and it has nothing to do with large, white, long-necked birds at all. But no matter how badly the settlers could mispronounce a word, those names for the Bay of Fundy are very clearly not the origins of the word fundy. It's sometimes suggested that fundy comes from fond de la bay, which is French for head of the bay. However, New Brunswick's greatest, and frankly most obsessive, naturalist and historian William F. Ganon didn't think much of that suggestion. He sourly noted in a 1930 essay, I've seen nearly all known early maps of the bay, but I've never seen that expression on them. It turns out that William F. Ganong had also asked that same question. What is a fundy anyways? He asked it in 1902. He then wrote 11 books over the next 21 years trying to find the answer to that question. And here I was, innocently thinking that the origins of the word fundy was such a simple question. In 1604, a fleet of French settlers, including Samuel de Champlain, arrived from Europe off the coasts of North America. At the time, there were no Europeans anywhere from Quebec down to Florida. Champlain's expedition would be building the first settlement anywhere on the entire continent at that time. 
they could have chosen to build their settlement anywhere in all of North America. And they chose the Bay of Fundy. Champlain seemed to have some confusion over what to name the Bay of Fundy. And he went between two options, Faldenaru and Norumbega. He likely got them from an old map from a century or so earlier. Champlain personally preferred the name Norumbega, which he thought was the name of a mythical city of gold that was somewhere in the area. The Maritimes El Dorado, if you will. But that's a whole other story for another time, and I'm trying to keep this episode under 21 years long, so we're going to move on from that one. Champlain's suggestion to name the Bay of Fundy Norumbega was overruled by his boss, the commander of that expedition, the Sieur de Mont, who named it La Baie Françoise, meaning French Bay. The name never really caught on. The French built a settlement on St. Croix Island, on the New Brunswick side of the Bay of Fundy. After a brutal first winter, they abandoned the little island, sailing across the bay to build a new settlement at Port Royal, which is now named Annapolis Royal in Nova Scotia. When Champlain was exploring somewhere around Advocate, Nova Scotia, deep inside the Bay of Fundy, he made a remarkable discovery. We found a very old cross, all covered in moss and almost wholly rotted away, an unmistakable sign that formerly Christians had been there. The Bay of Fundy had already been visited and named by Europeans long before Champlain's arrival, and that earliest of European names for it, of Fundy, would outlast the French and the later British attempts to rename it. Figuring out who had built that old moss-covered cross, and who had first named that big body of water, Fundy, requires going back a whole century before Champlain's arrival. We Maritimers take it for granted today how massive the Bay of Fundy is. It's hard for us to believe that people could just fail to notice it. Yet several of the earliest explorers somehow managed to do just that. The first European since the Vikings in the Maritimes was John Cabot in 1497. He explored Cape Breton and Nova Scotia, but he didn't find the Bay of Fundy. Nearly three decades later, in 1524, an Italian explorer working for France named Janus Varazzano explored the Maritimes. Janus Varazzano was a very colorful character, and he's another reason that poor old William F. Ganong ended up writing 11 books over 21 years on the subject. No one really knows for sure who Janus Verrazzano really was. He almost certainly changed his name several times in his life. And he chose the name Janus after an ancient Roman two-faced god of duplicity. Janus Verrazzano somehow talked his way into being a captain of a French ship exploring North America for the first time. 
Remarkably, it's unclear if he'd ever even captained a ship at all before this expedition. But he managed to become a captain of a ship named the Dolphin, of all things. Also, Janice Verrazano didn't write normal professional reports on his explorations, but rather he wrote a bunch of really excited personal letters to the King of France, who he always called my most serene highness. They were filled with exclamation points and scribbled notes all over the margin. They're just totally inappropriate for a work report, which really is what these were. And, as if that wasn't strange enough, he later quit exploring to become a pirate. One of the wealthiest pirates of all time, in fact. But that's another story, and we're supposed to be focusing on a lost colony here. So, Janus Verrazano and his ship, the Dolphin, sailed all the way from Florida up to Cape Breton. But they missed the entrance to the Bay of Fundy. But here's the thing. His weirdly personal letters to his most serene highness seemed curiously aware of its existence, even though they didn't actually find it. Which is weird, because he's often thought to be the first European to have actually been to these places. He actually went back and forth over where the mouth of the Bay of Fundy was, searching for it. He didn't find it though. He was running low on supplies, and he needed to hurry back to Europe before the winter hit. Before departing though, he found the Penobscot River. Its entrance is right next to the entrance of the Bay of Fundy. On his maps, he named it Orumbaga, the same word Champlain meant, but he misspelled it with an N, when he suggested the word Norumbaga. Samuel de Champlain was actually a terrible speller. He often misspelled words. His most infamous spelling error would have to be Acadia, the name that he gave to all of the Maritimes, and which lives on today as the name for the Acadian French speakers in the Maritime region. When he wrote Acadia on his maps, he was attempting to spell Arcadia, which is what Janus Verrazano had named the Maritimes. Arcadia is an ancient Greek word that means paradise. And that's the thing. Janus Verrazano had an obsessive and almost religious fixation on what he called the ancients which he meant ancient Greeks, like Aristotle and Plato. He always named places that he discovered after ancient Greek references. The only strange exception to this, though, was when the very unusual Janus Verrazano got angry. Then his place's names got weird, even by his standards, and he was almost certainly the strangest of the explorers. And explorers are generally a pretty odd bunch. So get this, near Portland, Maine, he tried to trade with locals, but he wrote to his most serene highness that the locals were uncouth and insulting, laughing and showing their buttocks. He was so annoyed at being mooned by the locals that he named Maine's Casco Bay Terra Onde Imala Gente, which means land of the bad people. 
William F. Ganong suggests that Janus Verrazano had already seen both the Bay of Fundy and the Penobscot River named on earlier explorers' maps, which had came before him, which he was using. Ganong wrote, It seems not improbable that Orambega on the Verrazano map may be a misprinted Grambaya, meaning Great Bay, taken from a descriptive designation for the bay in question on a Fagundes map. Ganong was referring here to Yao Alvarez Fagundes. He would have been in the Maritimes in between John Cabot and Yanis Verrazano's explorations of the Maritimes. Fagundes also likely built the old cross, which Champlain had later found, and he would explain where this word fundy came from. There's some surviving evidence of a 1521 Portuguese lost colony in the Maritimes. If true, this would be the first European settlement in the whole continent, even earlier than the much more famous American lost colony of Roanoke. This happened during a very early 25 or so year period in which the Portuguese dominated exploration and even colonization of what is now Canada, and this time period is almost completely forgotten today. The reason why it's forgotten is actually pretty simple. The Portuguese National Archives and a lot of the records from this time were destroyed by one of the worst earthquakes in all of human history in 1755. This earthquake completely flattened Portugal's capital of Lisbon. It even sent tsunami waves that were so violent that they forever altered the coastline of faraway Ireland. Despite the destruction of the vast majority of the Portuguese records, some documents still survive which tell of a forgotten early Portuguese exploration of Canada. As we've seen, the first European since the Vikings to arrive in Atlantic Canada was John Cabot back in 1497. The Portuguese, though, weren't far behind. The very next year, Yeo Lavrador explored the region. He landed in Labrador, which he probably named after himself. Although curiously, Lavrador is also the Portuguese word for farmer. In 1500, Portuguese captain Gaspar Corte Riel went looking for China. Instead, he found Newfoundland. He named it Bacalalos, which means codland. He named it after the plentiful codfish. When he was so mad that Newfoundland wasn't China that he kidnapped 57 indigenous people and he sold them as slaves back in Portugal to help pay for his expedition. The following year, Gaspe Corte Riel returned, and he was never heard from again. Generally suggested that he met his end at the hands of the indigenous people, who were perhaps understandably quite furious at his earlier kidnappings, 
But it's also said that there's an internally burning ghost ship which haunts the waters off of the Northumberland Strait in the Bay de Chaleur in northern New Brunswick, which can be seen on stormy nights, which is his, but that's another whole story, which we're not going to get into now. Only one year after his disappearance, his brother, Miguel Corte Riel, arrived with three ships to search for his lost sibling. Only two ships returned, and that was the last that was ever heard of Miguel Corte Riel. So far, the Portuguese aren't having a good track record in Canada, and so they stopped exploring for about a decade and a half. Then, in 1521, Yeo Alvarez Fagundes, who Ganong was earlier referring to, was given a commission which allowed him control over what the Portuguese named the Land of the Corte Reals, and this is Nova Scotia. The Portuguese King Emmanuel's letter of patent to the 61-year-old Fagundes still survives. It recounts how Fagundes had earlier at his own expense, discovered said lands and islands, and spent therein much of his wealth, and that now, should he set off to discover lands, to give and grant him governorship of all of the islands and the lands he may discover. So that's what the letter said. The letter then went on to state that Fagundes had already been to Canada the year before the letter was written, and it describes in detail the places he had already visited. These included Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and a place that he wanted to build his colony, Cabo do Bretaio, Cape Breton. It seems that after receiving this letter of patent, Fagundes immediately set about establishing a colony named Sam Pedro, which means St. Peter's. Some claim that it was on or near the same island in the Brador Lake, which is still named St. Peter's today. Fagundes recruited colonists, men and women alike, largely from the Canary Islands. They brought with them livestock and they brought with them farming equipment. They would have crossed the ocean on a lengthy journey. It took Janus Verazano's ship, the Dolphin, 49 days to get all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. They would have endured tight conditions, they would have endured seasickness, possibly disease, and likely storms on the voyage over, before finally sighting land. It seems that things didn't go smoothly for Fogundes' little colony in Cape Breton. In 1570, Captain Francisco de Souza was the governor of Portuguese Madeira Islands, and he was also a business partner of Fagundes, wrote in a letter, which still survives today, about what had happened 45 years before. The letter read, Determined to settle some part of Bacalos, which remember is Newfoundland, they did in a carrack, that's a large four-masted ship, and a caravel, that's a small, fast, three-masted ship, but finding the region to which they were bound very cold, they sailed along the coast east to west until they reached that running north, east, and southwest, and there they settled. If there were really only two ships, then it wouldn't have been that big of a colony, especially if one of the ships was a caravel 
which is not especially large. By contrast, Samuel de Champlain's later colony effort had three large carrick-sized ships, but it only carried 70 colonists. The letter goes on to describe the colony's location. It reads, This is at Cabo de Berteo, at the beginning of the coast that runs north in a beautiful bay where there are many people and goods of much value, and the soil is rich. This is likely the place that Fagundes named Terra de Moita Gemte, which means land of many people, and it's Brada or Lake. The area was heavily populated by Mi'kmaq, who had named the lake Pitiupuk. Mi'kmaq eagerly treated with Europeans, and ancient elders' dream had long foretold that one day blue-eyed people would come across the sea on floating islands and change their lives forever. The proud Mi'kmaq decided that they should trade with and learn from the newcomers to better take charge of their future. D'Souza's letter from 45 years later recounted what he had heard had became of the lost colony. The letter read, They lost their ships, and nothing further was heard from them, save the Basques, who continue to visit the coast in search of the many articles to be obtained there, who bring word of them, and state that they ask them to let us know how they were, and that the natives were friendly, and that the soil was good. The reference to the Basques highlights that even at that very, very early point, it wasn't only these famous explorers who were in North America. Ordinary working people like Basque fishermen and English traders from Bristol made these long trips across the ocean to fish and trade. If that letter is accurate, then the lost colony would have still had some limited contact with Europe. But if it's also true that their ships were all lost and damaged, then they wouldn't ever have been able to return home ever again. Samuel de Champlain wrote about the lost colony in a tone that took for granted that everyone knew its story. And despite mentioning it in passing many times, he didn't go into depth about it. He couldn't have anticipated the later destruction of Portugal by earthquake, and that one day his notes would be one of the few surviving sources that still talked about the colony. In his note, Champlain wrote, The Portuguese formerly attempted to settle upon Cabreton and passed a winter there, but the rigor of the season and the cold made them abandon the settlement. It's not clear whether he meant abandon, in the sense that the colonists went home, or that the colonists were abandoned by Portugal. While the colonists might certainly have felt abandoned by their home country, as they were left alone in a strange foreign continent, that wasn't quite the case. Champlain wrote about how he had found cows on Sable Island, which he was certain had come from a Portuguese ship which was lost on its way to colonize Cabreton Island over 60 years ago. It seems that the Portuguese had attempted to send reinforcements to the colony, but 
their ships crashed. Shortly after, Portugal itself was invaded and conquered by its next-door neighbor, Spain. There's some uncertain evidence suggesting that even after the occupation, the Portuguese had attempted to send a third fleet to relieve their lost colony, but it appears to have been shipwrecked as well. The lost colony was, at this point, indeed lost forever. Mi'kmaq oral histories also tell of a colony a century before Champlain arrived on Unamaki, which is their name for Cape Breton. They tell of Europeans building earth mounds, possibly fortresses, near the island they called Sinpilic, which is St. Peter's Island. They also told of how these unprepared settlers were ultimately devastated by Gesignuat, which means sickness, during a particularly harsh Gesig, which means winter. In the early 1800s, judge, historian, member of parliament, and the author who coined the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction, Thomas Chandler Halliburton claimed to have discovered Portuguese artifacts on St. Peter's Island. These artifacts that he discovered allegedly included a cannon. He claimed that while he returned to Halifax to confirm the cannon's authenticity, Cape Bretoners, who did not understand its significance, melted it down for scrap metal. Other artifacts that Judge Halliburton found, allegedly, were apparently lost. So as for my original question, the one that sent me down this whole big rabbit hole of a lost colony, which was, if you remember from the beginning, where does this word fundy come from? It went like this. When Fogundes first explored the Maritimes, the year before he started the Lost Colony, it was he who first described and mapped the Bay of Fundy and the Penobscot River, the entrances to which, remember, are very close together. William F. Ganong suggests that Fagundes was the first European to name the Bay of Fundy, which he called Graham Baya, which means Big Bay. And he also named the nearby Penobscot River Rio Fondo, which means Deep River. Ganong wrote, Fagundes had explored along the coast of Nova Scotia to the Bay of Fundy, which he was the first to map. Though later cartographers bedeviled the subject by mistakenly assimilating his map of the Bay of Fundy with the Penobscot. This bedeviling cartographer was none other than Janus Verazano, who likely had Fagundes' maps. Failing to find Fundy, but knowing it was there, he drew it on the maps that he made anyways, but he mixed the two names up. Not being Portuguese, he also mixed up the spelling. He called the Penobscot River, which Fagundes had named Grambea, Orambea. And then he called Fundy, which was labeled as Rio Fondo, as Fodinaru. Samuel de Champlain, who was, as you'll recall, also really not very good at spelling at the best of times, continued to bedevil the cartography even more when he noted it on maps as Funda, 
or sometimes even Fuxdi. Spelling really wasn't his strong suit. Over the centuries, Funda became Fundi. So that's the answer to my question as to what is a Fundi. It's a badly mangled attempt to say the word deep in Portuguese. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.